Now in your Bible, in Acts chapter 28, verse 24. This verse ought to be marked in your Bible by everybody who is interested in seeing people come to Christ. Everybody who is interested in missions. Everybody who is interested in soul winning. Because it gives the response that has always been given to the gospel. Sometimes we become discouraged. We go after the lost. We try to teach a Sunday school class. We try to conduct a mission. We try to have a bus route. We invite people to Jesus. We go soul winning. And some ignore our warnings. Some treat our invitations like we were inviting them to get poison ivy. And some believe and get saved. And that's what this verse says. And if you will mark it in your Bible, it will guard you from discouragement and despair in the work of the Lord. This sums up the whole reaction to the gospel of Christ in that early century. This is the only and first authentic history of the early church, the book of Acts. We'll be studying it this week and again tonight in the service. If we did not have the book of Acts, there would be so much missing in our spiritual panoply concerning the early church and what happened from the resurrection of Christ until the first end of the first century. This verse sums it up. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. John chapter 1 tells us, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to those who received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Some believe, some believe not. In this very room, and those who join us by radio week after week are divided in that same way. Some believe, and some believe not. Some receive, and some receive not. Now, what is it that motivated those early Christians to go across the world and plant the gospel as a beachhead on all the islands and continents of the then known world? In the book of Acts, chapters 1 to 12, is the story of Simon Peter. Chapters 13 through 28 is the story of the apostle Paul. And how God used those two mighty men along with the core of helpers and workers to plant the glorious gospel. Like, a, like our men planted the flag on the moon, they planted the flag of the gospel in Spain, in Italy, in the Balkan countries, in Greece, in what we call Turkey today, Asia Minor, in India, in Africa, all throughout Palestine, and on up into England. The glorious gospel was planted. And yet some believed and some believed not. The same reaction we have today. 
what was it that motivated those men to keep on doing it and never give up, never throw in the towel, never say I'm going to quit, but they went on until martyrdom. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down on a cross. The Word of God and other traditions tell us that the Apostle Paul was beheaded on the Appian Way outside the city of Rome. And every one of the early apostles except the, God, the Apostle John died a martyr's death. Some of us say, why don't people receive us? We go and knock on a door, we go invite people to Sunday school, invite them to ride our bus, we invite them to church, we invite them to work the Lord, we invite them to trust Christ, and they won't come. I guess it's because I'm not very effective. I guess it's because I don't know how to do it, or I'm not skilled at it. No, my beloved. that believe on his name now we come to this section of scripture the Lord has laid on my heart to just sort of summarize what it was that caused those early disciples Peter and Paul especially and the core of workers around them Barnabas and Timothy and Silas and and John and the others what was it that caused them to just keep on going and never quit? And if we could discover that and put it into action, I think the same thing could be realized in our lives. That we could continue and not be discouraged, not defeated, and not quit. We just keep on sailing on and on. Well, I think it can be summed up in maybe four statements. Number one, because of prayer. What pushed them to go on? It was prayer. The mightiest force in the universe is prayer. D.L. Moody was on a ship crossing the Atlantic Ocean. A fire broke out. And some of his friends said, Mr. Moody, while they're working down here and try to put the fire out, let's go up here on this end of the ship and pray. And Moody said, not so. We'll stand right here and work with them. And we'll pray and work at the same time. And that's what those early men did. They prayed and worked at the same time. R.A. Torrey said, Nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies beyond the reach of the will of God. Prayer is the only omnipotence God has granted to the human being. E.M. Bounds said, Prayer in one phase of its operation is a disinfectant and a preservative. Number one, it purifies the air. Number two, it destroys the contagion of evil. God shapes the world by prayer. That man is most immortal who has done the most and best praying. They are God's heroes, God's saints, God's servants, God's royalty. And if you'll study the early chapters of the book of Acts, as a matter of fact, if you study every chapter, you'll find the prominent place of prayer. In chapter 1, they were in the upper room praying. In chapter 2, they were all in one accord with one spirit in prayer. The mighty wind of God came. 
In chapter 3, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. In chapter 4, when they had suffered severe persecution, they got together and got on their faces before God and prayed, and the place was shaken where they were, and great boldness was given to the men. I think those early disciples and early Christians went out and kept on going because of prayer. And how tragic and trite and truant is our prayer life. We pray so little. A.C. Dixon said, when we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do, and that's a whole lot. When we rely upon eloquence, we rely upon what can be done with a silver tongue. And that's great because people can be moved greatly by oratory. When we rely upon money, we get what money can do. When we rely upon culture, we get what culture can do. When we rely upon influence, we get what men can do. But when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. And so we pray and ask God. It was said of Hudson Taylor, the sun never rose in China without finding Hudson Taylor on his knees. No wonder God so greatly owned the ministry of Hudson Taylor and through the ages, the years that have followed Hudson Taylor's promotion to heaven, God has done a work in China. Those early Christians in this century that laid so much groundwork in China and so many Baptist missionaries that went there along with Lottie Moon and, and many others seemed like their work was all to no avail in 1948 and 49 when the communists came and crushed it and closed all the churches and arrested the missionaries and deported them and killed them. Christians were persecuted. It seemed like the Christian movement would be exterminated. But today, there are more Christians in China than there were when the communists came. And Christianity grows because of prayer. Now, folks, God can answer prayer in regard to the Near East, Middle East. God can answer prayer in regard to the church. God can answer prayer in regard to souls. I've had some men on my heart for whom I've prayed. Sometimes it seems there's absolutely no budge, no budge whatsoever, no interest at all. And I, I'd sometimes pray, Lord, should I keep on praying? And the burden kept on being there. I'd prayed for five men. Three of them got saved. One of them I'd witnessed to over and over again, and on his deathbed, he invited Christ to come into his heart. There's a man in this city that I've prayed for for years and years, and I go see him from time to time. He shows absolutely no interest at all, none at all. Every time I see him, he says, well, when I get ready to be saved, I'll get saved. I don't need you. And just before I leave, he'll say, now, don't give up on me. And I haven't. And I will tell you, I expect to see him saved. Now, God answers prayer. Oh, let's pray. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. And those early Christians prayed. They knew how to pray. But there's another reason why they pushed on and they kept on going. In the face of all the problems, they saw the multitudes, the multitudes. I think they memorized that passage in Joel, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And as they saw the multitudes, they saw a glimpse of heaven, and they saw a terrible vision of hell. Heaven, how wonderful. 
The choir sang a while ago, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, everything's all right. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Now heaven is so precious. There are no tears forever. God wipes them away. There's no more pain because it's all a past thing. And there's no more separation, no more sea. And there's no more death. Dear oldest Kirby, deacon in our church, faithful man of God, member of our church choir for a long time, on the entertainment committee of our church. He and his wife entertained royalty in their home year after year, opened their home to college students. Many of our students who are serving around the world have been in the Otis Kirby's home. Otis swept through the gates to glory yesterday after six weeks of drudgery in the hospital. His wife already gone to be with the Lord. But I want to tell you, everything's all right over there. Here in the earth, turbulence and trial and trouble. And those early disciples knew that everybody was faced with problems and hurts and heartaches. But they saw a vision of heaven and they went out to tell people how to get to that celestial city. But they also saw a vision of hell and how terrible hell is. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Hell with all of its fire, all of its agony, all of its misery, and all of its memory. On and on forever and forever. Never another opportunity to have a change. You know, we don't know anything about that. If we make a mistake, we can change it tomorrow. If we make a misjudgment, we can go do something about it tomorrow. If we mischange somebody, we don't give them enough money back, we can go make it right if we'll be honest. If we hurt somebody, we can go if we'll do what the God wants us to do and make it right. Even if we have a tragic accident, somehow it can work out. But I want to tell you, a man or a woman who rejects Jesus Christ, God's only remedy for sin, there is no hope forever and forever and forever. For when he leaves life, he goes out to the nether gloom. He goes out eternally separated from God forever. And those early Christians knew it. That's the reason when, when Paul went before the kings, you think it was easy for him to be open-mouthed? The easiest thing in the world would be just closed-mouthed and know that if he just wouldn't say anything, he could probably get out of the problem. But he always opened his mouth. And one of the kings said, Why, why Paul, much learning hath made thee mad. Another king said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian with these few words, just sort of contemptuously looking at him, put him back in chains. They sent him over to Rome, and there he was in a prison, and finally beheaded. Why did he do all that? He did it for the sake of the gospel, the glorious gospel, because God's only remedy for sin is the glorious gospel. But I think there's another reason they kept on going. Not only because of prayer, prayer motivated them, prayer kept them at it. Not only because of the multitudes they saw, the potential of spending life in heaven or spending eternal death in hell, but because of the mandate, because of the command, Jesus said to do it. 
In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the disciples were gathered around the Lord, and they said, Now, Lord, after the resurrection, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time when we're going to be able to sit on two thrones near you? And Jesus said, It is not for you to know the signs or the times or the seasons, but I say to you, ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. This was another form of the Great Commission given in Matthew 28. Go ye into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Mark 16, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. And in Luke chapter 24, you're witnesses of these things. And in John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father sent me, even so send I you. And on and on, that commission was given. And those early disciples, Peter and, and, and uh, Barnabas and and Saul who became Paul and Timothy and on and on all their companions the thing that moved them to go on they remembered what Jesus said now how about us we're removed from them by about 1990 years can we still hear that mandate those commands or can we just sit comfortably by Sean came by this morning. He said, Friday, I have to ship out to Saudi Arabia. When I thought of how some Christians treat the commands of the Lord, I started to say to Sean, well, why do you go? I didn't say a foolish thing like that. But had I said it, he would have said, Uncle Sam told me to do it. Why do you think our young men are over there in Saudi Arabia in the desert and possibly in a few days will march or fly into a terrible, tragic war. I don't know whether it'll happen or not, but why do you think they're there? Because they want to be? Because of the excitement of it all? Because it's fun? Because that's their hobby in life? Because it's easy to do? Because they know all about it? I say a thousand times, no, they're there because the government said to do it. Now, my beloved friend, our dear Lord told us to go. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. He said, Peter, you go. John, you go. He said, Barnabas, you go. He said, Paul, you go. He said, Glendale Church, you go. What will we do with it? What will we do with it? Will we just sit idly by and commit spiritual insubordination? Go A-W-O-L from the cause that Christ has called us to do? Or will we do it? Will we say, here am I, Lord? Here am I. I'll give my money so that the missionaries can go. I'll give my time. I'll give my life. I'll put my all on the altar. I'm willing. Here am I, Lord. Use me. I'm deeply impressed, and I pray that everybody in our church is when some young man or young woman or older man or woman walks down this aisle, little boy or girl, and says, I want to volunteer my life to serve the Lord. I will put my life on the altar. If God wants me to preach, I'll do it. If God wants me to be a missionary, I'll do it. If God wants me to serve him in this area, I'll do it. If God wants me to be in some ministry here, I'll do it. 
And I think in my heart, that's like seeing 10,000 people get saved. Oh God, put it on our hearts to hear the command, the mandate, and to say, here my Lord, I'll go, I'll do it. And then one other thing, I think the thing that kept them, kept them going and kept them pushing on was the idea of replacement or multiplication of their own work. There came a time in Barnabas' life when he and Paul had a falling out. Paul was a mighty power for God and Barnabas had gone and brought Paul, nurtured him. Paul owed a lot to Barnabas. But they fought, fell out over John Mark. Barnabas wanted John Mark to keep on going with them and Paul said, no, he quit. He was a quitter. I don't want him to go on any longer. The contention was so sharp that they divided and Paul took Silas and went on the second missionary journey and Barnabas took John Mark and went down to Cyprus. We don't hear any more about Barnabas. The Bible says he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost. And much people were added to the Lord. But he poured his life into John Mark. When Paul was in prison, in the last year of his life, last weeks maybe, he wrote to Timothy. And Timothy had somehow knowledge of where Mark was. And Paul, Brother Paul said, Timothy, you find Mark and bring him here to Rome because he's profitable to me for the ministry. Barnabas's name is not mentioned, but Barnabas had literally poured his life into Mark, duplicating his life, multiplying his life. And Mark touched thousands and perhaps millions, and we know by the gospel that he wrote, he has touched, touched multiplied billions of people through the years. Now listen, same thing can be true in your life, in our lives as a church, as individuals. Some will believe and some will believe not. But we keep on going, recognizing that when you touch somebody's life, you may be touching a whole nation for God. Whoever dreamed when Ed Kimball, the shoe salesman, stood in the back of a store in Boston, put his hand on the shoulder of a 17-year-old boy and told him how to be saved. And that boy said, I, I want Christ, I'll receive him. That boy's name was Dwight, Dwight Moody. And he went out to touch a million people for Christ. Ed Kimball has an interest in every one of those. Janice sang a while ago, I'm thinking today of that wonderful land. Will there be any stars in my crown? I'll tell you there will be. There'll be stars in your crown if you'll multiply your ministry by pouring your life into somebody else like they did in that early church. May we bow together in prayer. Our Father, thank you for the moving, moving power of the Holy Spirit and the way God used those disciples to just keep at it and keep going. We pray the same thing will be true today in every one of us. They will keep going and moving and being willing to be servants and will not give up and not quit. It would say, Lord, use me. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand, please. Uh, I want us to sing that song, Only Trust Him. Come every soul by sin oppressed. Number 312, 312. And as we sing it, there may be somebody here today, you've never been saved, or you've never dealt seriously with the question, what am I going to do with Jesus? I want to tell you, you can't be neutral. You either receive Him or you reject Him. 
You say, I trust him or I don't trust him. And you can say, I'm going to get to business with God or I'm going to loaf the rest of my life and cut up and be a mean person. You can do that, whichever you want to do. But I want to ask you, if you sincerely would say, I want to put my life in the hand of God and I want God to use me, I want to ask you to come and put your life on the altar for the Lord. Somebody here needs to be saved today. You need to come to Jesus and trust him as your savior. There's somebody that ought to move your membership to this church and become part of the fellowship here. There's someone here who needs to say, Lord, I want you to use me. I just feel the tug of God like a Vesuvius in my heart. I know you have a mission, a purpose, a plan. I'm not an accident. You have something for me to do. And I, want to, I want to do it. And I want you to use me. Would you walk down this aisle and offer your life to the Lord? There are some who have been saved and you need to come and say, I want to take a stand in this church for God. Maybe to be baptized. You've been saved but not baptized by immersion. Or you need to become part of the fellowship. You do what God tells you to do. While we begin to sing, come every soul by sin oppressed. Will you come to Jesus today?